Please call him. We need Ben here. Um, I love having the percussion, and I like having that male voice. He and Ray also. I mean, so if you or if you have Cotton's number, let me know. I'll call him. See if we can get that deployment de delayed or something. Um, we need him here. Over the last three weeks, we've seen five men abandon themselves to Jesus Christ. We thought, saw that in John chapter 1. They began that never-look-back disciple walk. We could simply say we've made the point, the Christian walk. To be a disciple is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. There are no distinctions in the Bible. We've talked about how these men were able to go with him. Well... I hope you can remember. I hope that, that we made that point clearly. How could these men happily give the rest of their lives away to this carpenter from Nazareth? Well, they believed. That's how. That's how simple it is. They, they believed that he was the Messiah, and they wholeheartedly followed him. We've talked about how these guys did it. Again, they believed that he was who he said he was. And that by his life and subsequently by his death and resurrection and the 10,000 promises we have in Scripture, that he is wholly committed to us. We've made the point. God is wholly committed to his people. The Bible reveals this. And the Bible also reveals that his people are wholly committed to him. God is committed to the elect, and the elect are committed to God. It's just all the way through the scriptures. Two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that we just looked at some of the stunning promises of God to his own. Uh, yes, he's on the lookout, as Second Chronicles 16 says, he's on the lookout to strongly support those who love him. Yes, he says, surely I will hold you with my righteous right hand, Isaiah 41. Yes, he said, I will not turn away from doing good to my people with all my heart and with all my soul, Jeremiah 32. Then you remember Zephaniah 3. God says, I am a warrior to give my people victory and I will exalt over them with shouts of joy. All of these beautiful promises that we reviewed. And then last week we took um, a verse-by-verse -verse look at Psalm 121 because I shared with you last week, God just says, tell them one more time that I'm for them. Tell them one more time I will never leave them and forsake them. I want them to be encouraged. I want them to be encouraged. And we looked at that beautiful Psalm 121 and we delighted in these re repeated promises of God to be our keeper. If you don't know Psalm 121, uh, you might want to go... Take a look at it and memorize it even. It's a great psalm to have in your back pocket. The one septillion star God is our helper. He is our protector and he is our God. And I love the way the Holy Spirit says it there at the end of the psalm. He says, from this time forth and forevermore. Right? From now until forever. I'm your guard. I'm your protector. I am your helper. Yahweh has said it in his word 10,000 different ways. He's all in with his people. There are no half measures with Yahweh. And he's called you to the same thing. That there would be no half measures in your walk 
with Him. He calls us to follow Him, and that's in an absolute sense. This is not in some part-time sense. I think I used that word a week or two ago. Christianity is never part-time. It's never something I do peripherally. It is who I am. It's what I do. It's how I live. When I get up in the morning, I love how C.S. Lewis says this. He says, there's no bargaining with him on this point. You don't get to negotiate your terms of coming to Christ. You're all in or you're not in. This is the explicit word of God throughout the Scripture. And it made me think of this. I've shared this with you before, but I want to share it again. It just makes a point. Uh, Wilbur Reese was a 20th century scholar, and he wrote a book entitled $3 Worth of God. Now, if you've been around very long, you've been, probably been in various churches, and you know what they're dispensing is $3 Worth of God. And the folks are happy with it. Just three bucks. Right? That's enough. I don't want my life to be blown up. Just want you to pat me on the head, tickle my ears. Anyway, this is what Wilbur Reese says. I'd like three bucks worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or maybe a nice snooze in the sun. I want a little ecstasy. I don't want transformation. I want warmth of the womb. I don't want the new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I want three dollars worth of God. Now, I've been a Baptist all my life. I know about this. I know about $3 worth of God. I know about this. Jesus never talks like this. Jesus never talks like this. He's always been crystal clear. There are no half measures with me. And we're going to see that in the text, right? You, you heard the text, right? We're going to see it in the text. Yes, this is a lethal mindset. And I might add no small insult to Jesus. God vomits lukewarmers out of his mouth for a reason. We talked a little bit about it last week or the week before. He doesn't know what lukewarm is. Yahweh doesn't do lukewarm. And he won't have it. He won't have it. God has never called us to anything less than absolute commitment, Old Testament, New Testament. We saw it five weeks ago in Luke 14, right? Jesus had those plural multitudes following Him. We see this in the, the Gospels a number of times. Thousands of people have congregated. Thousands of people are going along with Him. And you may remember, Jesus turned around and He said, I love you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. Please pray this prayer to receive me into your heart. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of you have been subjected to this kind of thing. Jesus never says this. Jesus never talks like this. He never talks like this. In Luke 14, we saw it a couple of weeks ago. He said, to be my disciple, which is to be a Christian, you must love me supremely. He went on to say, you must love me more than family, more than your stuff, and more than your life. This is the call. <laughs> this is the call. Jesus actually said, you've got to count the cost. Luke 14, 28, you need to count the cost. If you're going to think about coming with me, you need to sit down and you need to do the math on this. 
It's what our young man in our text this morning had not done and would not do. He thought it was probably pretty easy to become a Christian, right? It's just do some formalities. I'll just do whatever, you know, a couple of religious formalities, some denominational formalities, and it'll all be good. I know he's going to like me. I'm a rich young ruler. I'm down at the synagogue. I'm a big deal down at the synagogue. You know he's going he's to be so excited that I've come and, 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 and I'm interested in talking with him about what eternal life is, that I'm paying him that kind of respect as a great teacher. But we know, don't we, those of us who've read our Bibles, it's always that thing that Jesus says six times in the Gospels, right? I'm not aware of anything else he says this many times. Jesus says, and I'll read it to you from Matthew 10, 39. He who has found his life, you already know, shall lose it. This young man wouldn't lose it. He'd found it. There's no way he's going to lose it, right? Jesus continues, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. This guy has no hope of finding it. He can't let go. Um, I don't recommend the Message Bible. Eugene Peterson wrote the Message Bible. It's not the Bible. It's a paraphrase, uh, one man's paraphrase. But I like how he takes these six verses uh, of the things Jesus says about this. And, and I've just got a, a string here. I want to read these six uh, paraphrases to you. Eugene Peterson. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. This is what Jesus is going to say to this man. But if you forget about yourself and look to Jesus, you'll find both yourself and me. Right? If you, if you grasp and cling to life on your terms, you will lose it. But if you, let, if you let that life go, you'll get life on God's terms, forever real and eternal. Jesus said this six times. Minimum six times it's repeated. We don't know, really know how many times he may have said it. Repeated in the scripture. It's the thing this young man in our text this morning could not do. He was clinging to life on his terms. It's the title of the sermon. This is the one thing you lack. This is what you lack. You love your life the way it is. You can never go with me. You can never go with me. So I hope you have your Bibles open to Mark 10. We're going to spend a few minutes there this morning. The Holy Spirit has included this account in three different Gospels. Matthew 19, Luke 18, and in our text this morning, Mark 10. Verse 17. You heard Joe read the text. I'm going to just plow back through it some. And as Jesus was sitting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. Of course, men of stature never did this in the first century. Most men never do this at all. And began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in Matthew's account, Matthew says, behold, what does that mean? It's like, wow, look what happened. Look what just happened. This, you know, big shot religious guy is kneeling before Christ. Okay? He's kneeling before Christ. He's a ruler. Luke tells us he's a ruler, no doubt, no doubt at the synagogue. We know he's rich. Verse 22 tells us that he owned much property. 
So while this big shot religious guy, he's apparently coming to Christ. He's rich, he's influential, he's a leader, obviously an outwardly moral man, highly respected in the community. This is a hot prospect. Okay, this is what, this takes us back to the healthy church, right? We have got to understand what the gospel is and what it's not. Or we'll, or we'll just, you know, we'll have a lot of false conversions in here. And I've had a talk with several of you about false conversions, right? This is the thing that a, 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 a conscientious pastor will fight against, false conversions. Because once the delusion has set in, it's really hard to break it. Right? And so, this is a big deal with, with respect to a healthy church. But this guy, he's highly motivated. He's got the right attitude. He, he, he comes to the right source. He asks the right questions. He's a hot prospect. Today, your average Baptist pastor, and I don't know about all other denominations, but I'm sure it's pretty much the same. Your average church, in your average church, he would tell this guy, well, you know, he just simply needs to believe some facts and make a profession. And if you'll make a profession of faith, well, we'll just pray this prayer, and immediately I'll pronounce you a Christian, and I'll baptize you next Sunday. That's what happened to me. When I was eight. The Bible never talks like this. You know, we've, we've imported all of this stuff and we've put it on top of the biblical gospel. The issue is, do you love me supremely? That's the issue in our text. It was the issue in Luke 14 a couple of weeks ago. Do you love me supremely? That's the call. And Jesus obviously can see this young man's heart. He's going to rip his heart out of his chest, and he's going to show it to him. You don't love God supremely. You have a different God. This is what true conversion always looks like. He's the master evangelist. So it's like either most of us don't know how to evangelize or he doesn't know how to evangelize. Somebody's messing up here. We don't just offer easy believism and decisionism to anyone who shows some vague interest. That's malpractice. It's just malpractice. That's not loving people. It's despising people. You know, you know it's true. The man who puts the most truth in front of you is the man who actually cares for you. He is the one who cares for you. You know, this decisionism, it's a blight on the modern church. I'll make a decision, and that's all I have to do. I make the decision, and I never really ever look back. Many people, you ask them about their conversion. I, 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 this happened to me many times in Milan. I say, hey, tell me about your conversion. Well, uh, I was baptized when I was eight. They don't have anything else to say. They have nothing else to say. Well, well tell me about uh, your walk with Christ and, and your prayer life and, and how you spend time in the Word. Tell me about how real it is for you. It's like crickets. Right? Love, a healthy church has to understand about this. We have to understand about it. So as we work through verses 18 to 21, I want you to identify, if you can, the major aspects of the biblical gospel Christ is putting in front of this very, very eager prospect. 
which we will see are clear barriers to false professions of faith. Jesus is putting the hurdles up. You're going to have to run the hurdles to get to me. The primary goal of any biblically informed church is to fight hard against false converts. Hey man, I, I love baptizing people. I do. It's, it's a great privilege and a great joy. But you know what? The worst thing we can do is baptize someone who's not, who hasn't fully worked out the gospel in their heart and soul. You know, MacArthur makes that point. These are the hardest people to reach. Religious people are the hardest people to reach. Church members are the hardest people to reach, if that's all they are. So, verse 18. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is saying at least two things here. First, I think he's saying, uh, most probably, do you, know I'm, do you know that I am I am? Do you know that I'm the Messiah? Do you know I'm the, uh, the Holy One of Israel? Do you know I am the Promised One? I think it's what, one thing he's saying. Do you know I'm God? Are you calling me God? Is, is that what you mean? He's challenging his use of the word good. Do you know that I'm God? I do believe that's one of the things that's on point here. Secondly, Jesus is saying, well, no one's good except God alone. That backhanded implication is, well, you must be calling me God because no one's good but God. This is the, the, the biblical uh, meaning of the, of the word good. Good is an absolute term in the Bible. There are no degrees. It's not relative in any sense. There is only one good being in the cosmos, and his name is Yahweh. I know most of us think we're pretty good. <laughs> but if we've read our Bibles, we understand by a biblical definition, we're bad. And we desperately need a Savior, right? We desperately have to have God save us. Right? We need God to bring us to God. I love that. God must bring us to God. We desperately need this. From a human perspective, there are relative degrees of good and bad. I mean, you know, you're not as bad as you possibly could be, but as compared to God, you don't stack up. It's the Isaiah 64, 6 thing. Our righteousness is what? You know, our righteousness before God is what? Filthy rags. Menstrual cloths. That's what's being said. That's what your self-righteousness is before holy God. Yeah, you get that in your head, you run to Christ. But if you think you're pretty good, you know, I did it, Karen. I did this. Okay. Um, she's trying to stop me from doing that. If you think you're pretty good, you don't need him. You know, you, I know Brad has shared with me, you know, he was a, what's that word? Uh, you go visit people who are dying. Chaplain. Okay. You know, and many people would say, he said, he said, the vast multitudes would say, well, I'm, 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 pretty, I'm a good person. No! A healthy church is going to tell you you're not a good person. You're not a good person. But you're holy in Christ. Right? H-O-L-Y. You're holy. If you're holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, in Christ, you are holy. H-O-L-Y in Christ. It's not, you know, we don't, we don't have anything to stick our chest out about. 
verse 19. You heard Joe read it. I won't reread it. He said, do the law then. Why do, you, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Well, you, you do the law. Well, when was the last time you heard the law used in an evangelistic appeal? The law condemns. It's, as Galatians 3 says, it's our tutor to drive us to God, right? That's why Jesus brings it up. He brings up the second half of the table of the law of the Ten Commandments. And what does this guy say? Verse 20. And he said to Jesus, Teacher, I've done all of this from my youth up. I know how to check the box. I know how to be holy in front of men. I know how to look good down at the synagogue. I know all this stuff. <laughs> and of course, Jesus is about to undress him in a doctrinal sense. You know, he, he says, I've never killed, I've never committed adultery, I've never stolen. Jesus, we know his words from the Sermon on the Mount. You've been taught that if you don't commit murder, that's great. But if you hate someone, you are a murderer. Jesus said, You've been taught that if you don't commit adultery, that's great. But I say to you, if you've ever lusted after a woman, you're an adulterer. You know, it's never, it's never outside in. It's always inside out, right? This is what Christianity is. It's always inside out. Um, and we're polluted from the inside out. We need, desperately need a Savior. This guy thinks he's pretty good. In fact, he thinks he's better than most. He's devout. He's sincere. He's committed. He's a leader in the synagogue. No, he hasn't physically killed anyone or committed adultery this week. But he's probably sinned that very day with some impure thought. You know, this is Brad and I were talking about it this morning. You know, there's this whole thing about the holiness and otherness of God. We almost have no concept. You know, your average church is not putting this otherness about this otherness of God in front of the people. This holiness of God, this absolute, total, complete, perfect holiness. And compared to that, you are, and all your religious works are filthy rags. You better not be trusting in them. You better be trusting in a living Savior, a resurrected Savior. That, that's got to be your trust, right? That's got to be your hope. It's not anything that you're doing. Except, you know, the, the works we do are, give, give us assurance that, yeah, we, we love Him. We're doing it because we love Him. There's some, some assurance there in our works. We've said it many times, God is not impressed with man's goodness or his religion. We know how Jesus condemned the Pharisees repeatedly. White washed what? Full of dead men's bones. That's what a religious man is before Yahweh. White washed tomb, tombs full of dead men's bones. So Jesus is confronting this guy. He's confronting his self-righteousness and his self-justification. He could do the law outwardly, but no man can do it inwardly. 
It's never about the externals with respect to Christianity. Hate is murder, lust is adultery. Verse 21. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. What does he lack? Well, you already know the end of the story. You know what he lacks. And I'm going to stop and ask you, is there anything you lack? I lovingly ask you, is there anything you lack? Great day to do inventory. Great day to do inventory. Is there anything you lack when it comes to your relationship with the living God? Is there anything you lack? You know, I, 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 can't, I can't rip into your chest, pull out your heart and show it to you. You know, this is what Jesus is doing to this guy. And we know deception is an easy thing to fall into. One thing you lack, go and sell all you have and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come. And here it is, follow me. It's what he said to the five guys in John 1, right? Follow me. Very simple. Follow me. I'll just ask you another question. Are you, you know, could a, a disinterested third party look at your life, look at your checkbook, look at every aspect of your life and say, this person is following Jesus. You know? They don't just attend church when it's convenient. They're following Jesus. They love Jesus, right? Jesus says, you got to sell all your stuff, man, if you want to go with me. So what is he saying? Is, it, is he saying that we all have to be paupers to become Christians? Is that, what, is that what he's saying? No, he's showing this young man his heart. And I don't know what's in your heart, but, you know, if you start dealing with Christ, he'll show you your heart. Sometimes it's very painful for those of, those of, us, those of us who have walked with Christ for a while. It can be painful. You know, you're walking along and suddenly you realize there's another idol. i got to deal with it. Right? I'm spending too much time with this or that or the other thing. Too much affection on that. This is taking out too much time in my life. Time that I, I could, you know, better spend worshiping, serving, being that good steward that Christ calls us to. This guy could have been a great church member, but he could never be a Christian. There's just a huge difference here, right? This guy, you know, if, if I ran into a guy like this, and, you know, I mean, you could just, yeah, we, I, I could get him on the church rolls pretty fast. But that's not, that's not his greatest need to be on the church roll. His greatest need is to deal with the one thing he lacks. To deal with that. And what he lacks is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so Jesus is saying, oh, you've kept the law? Then keep it supremely. Love your neighbor supremely. Give them everything. Love me supremely. Follow me. <laughs> oh, you've kept the law? It's what Jesus said to those five guys over in John 1. It's what we truly believe about Jesus. You know, some folks, and you know it's true, and I was like this before I was truly converted. You know, it's like, I just want to add God to my life like a, a, a new appliance. He's like my new refrigerator. I need Him. He makes life better. It's functional. It's utilitarian. 
God won't be that for you. He will never be that for you. That's not the bargain He's striking with His people. This guy didn't see Jesus as his ultimate pleasure and treasure. This is why the, the, the five guys in John 1 could go. They, they recognized immediately that he is the ultimate treasure. He is the ultimate pleasure. Yes, I abandon all for him. And this guy couldn't go there. Because God wasn't his ultimate treasure. He had a different one. Verse 22 but as these words, but at these words, his face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. I think, I think the Luke text says he was extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy. So why, why, why did this big shot religious guy, why did his face fall? Why was he grieved? Because he was breaking the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. Jesus showed him the last four or five. But now he's going to put the first four in front of him. You think you keep the law? You guys know the first four commandments? He had a false god he had, he had put before Yahweh. It was money. He was an idolater. First commandment. He preeminently worshipped and served this God. Money. Second commandment. Every time he used God's name, it was in vain because he loved a different God. Third commandment. And every time he went to the synagogue to observe the Sabbath, he was a hypocrite because he loved another God. Fourth commandment. I'll never forget what Don Whitney said in one of my seminary classes. He was my, one of my seminary profs. I never forgot it. And I think about it often. And I just share it with you. He says, you know, if you're, sitting, if you're down at the church just glibly and, shall we say, non-thinkingly singing praises to God, you are taking His name in vain. If this is not coming from the heart, it is in vain. And I was so convicted, right? I was so, so convicted. Don't come in here in vain. Come in here to worship your great God. Right now we're talking about it this morning. You know, he's, he's a great God. Let our worship be a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of Yahweh. So what were you able to identify the principal ele elements of Jesus' gospel presentation? Verse 18, he showed God to this man. God, only God is good. You're not good. No one's good. But God, verse 19, he showed him the law. The law blew, blew up his self-righteousness. Verse 21, Jesus showed this man his sin against God and called him to repentance. Verse 21, Jesus revealed his absolute lordship when he said, I'm calling you to come with me. Oh! You're not interested. You're not interested in lordship. Oh, I would love salvation, but I'm not interested in lordship. 
You know, it's this false dichotomy that's in much of the modern church. Oh, you can have Jesus as Lord and live like ever, however you want to live. It doesn't really matter. He doesn't have to be Lord of your life. This is blasphemous. This is from the pit of hell. We don't get to split Jesus off from, from, from Savior and Lord. He's both or He's nothing to us. He's both or He's nothing. This is the gospel a healthy church espouses. We don't do formulas here. We, have, we try to evangelize like the Lord evangelized. This is how God did it. It's not as catchy as Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but it eliminates the, 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 the bane of the modern church false conversions. It eliminates most of those. And I, we don't have to come in here and entertain you. You love God. We just proclaim the truth. We hold Him up and you love Him. That's enough for you. I don't have to, I don't have to play a banjo up here and tell you jokes. You know, you're not interested in that. Hey, if that's what you want, you can stay home and watch television. Watch, watch reruns of Hee Haw. Right? Man, we don't need to be entertained. We want to be pulled into worship. Because our God is worthy of worship. And we sing His praises and we bring Him an offering. And we sit under His preached Word. And ask God to change us because we all need to be changed. And that includes the preacher. So all we got to do is have some integrity with the gospel, right? We got we to gotta have some integrity. This guy could have been a, he could have been a great church member. He would have been no doubt helpful on the building committee. A lot of money coming in from this guy. He did not love God supremely. He loved God like a new refrigerator. It would be, it would be good, it would be handy to have a better refrigerator. He would serve a purpose. As my Romanian friends said, and I'll never forget it one night in young adult Bible study, he said, you know, that's, that's the utilitarian view of God, and that's exactly what it is. How do I get temporal utility? out of this thing called Christianity. So why does he go away grieved? He loved his money, the security, the stability, the comfort, the ease, the esteem, the prestige, the status, the power, and self-sufficiency it afforded him. It was his precondition. He could not love God supremely. Again, as C.S. Lewis says, you don't get to bargain about these things with Yahweh. We, there's a beautiful contrast over in, I think it's, what is it, Luke 19, Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? He was a rich guy too. You remember what he did? Unbidden by Christ. He just said, hey, I'm giving away half my stuff. He was so full of joy. You know, we see the, 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 the contrast here, right? This guy's grieved. You're asking for my stuff. And Zacchaeus said, I'm going to give half of it away. I mean, th this is a dichotomy here. It's, it's from joy he's doing it. You know, this is the difference between false and true conversion. One of the distinctive differences. It, it, one one is, 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 yeah, it's, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. But, 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 but true conversion is, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. You know, whatever it looks like. I'm in. I'm in. I love that dichotomy. True conversion brings great joy. 
not grief as we see in this young man. Verses 23 to 27, I'll just summarize pretty quick. Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to be saved. He, said, he goes on to say, it's hard to enter the kingdom of God. I think it's an exclamation point. Well, in my Bible, do you guys have an exclamation point there at the end of verse 22? It's hard to enter the kingdom of God. What is he saying? It's not about believing a few facts and praying a prayer. It's, it's a miracle. This is where the healthy church comes in. We understand it's a miracle. I can't convert you. But only God can convert you. It's the begotten of God miracle. That has to happen. It has to happen. Verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Meaning, of course, it's impossible. Verse 26, the disciples are astonished. And they say, well, who then can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus says, with men salvation is impossible, but with God all things are possible. A healthy church understands we are faithful to the text, and then the Holy Spirit does the miracle that only He can do. I'm not going to try to whip you into an emotional lather or a psychological pressure to come to Christ. I could never face my God if I did that. I'm not going to usurp His job. His job is conversion. My job is to have integrity with the text. And that's your job when you're out, when you're out witnessing. Have integrity with the text. No denominational shortcuts. No silly religious games. This guy, he had an idol, man. He had an idol. He loved his money. And again, we're not saying you have to give away all your money to be a Christian, but you would! Wouldn't you? If it's what God is calling you, uniquely, uniquely calling you to do, you would do it. You would put it on the altar, of course you would do it. You would do it in a heartbeat. You would do it. If you were convinced God's calling you to do it, you would do it. That transaction's already happened. It's already happened in your heart. You dealt with this a long time ago. <laughs> you would do it. If you were led of God to do it, He is our supreme and ultimate treasure. He is our supreme and ultimate treasure. It's not the bank account. Verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Behold, or wow, we left everything and followed you. Matthew gives us a little more detail. He says, he puts these words in Peter's mouth. We left everything for you. What will there be for us? I mean, I guess, okay, this is a valid question. You and I don't have to ask this question. We kind of know the answer to this question. We have the, we have the completed canon of Scripture. But Peter asked this question. What will there be for, for us? Well, we've been talking about this, right? Everything, it's everything for you. 
What will there be for us? Everything. Everything. Man, Christianity is so huge. It's so big. It's so earth-shattering. It's eternity-altering. We get every good thing. Right? Let me read verse 29 to 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much. Now... And in the now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. What is Jesus saying? The, the same thing we've been talking about for a couple of weeks. We get everything in God. God is our reward. He's withholding no good thing from His people, right? <clears throat> we, you can't make a sacrifice for Christ. You can't make no real sacrifice. Because he will multiply it back to you a hundredfold. Now and in the ages to come. You know, I love that thing in, in, in Psalm 119 where it says, He will enlarge your hearts. Right? He enlarges our hearts. So we can, you know, begin to try to apprehend his beauty and his glory and his genius and his, you know, all of that. Jesus said, you've been adopted into my family. <laughs> Everything is yours. The Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom, Luke chapter 12. Your Father has given you eternal life. Every good thing is yours, 1 Corinthians 3.21. And I love how John Piper comments on this text. These are Piper's words. Christians are not heroes. You know... We read this text, we go, wow, those, those, no, 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 listen. They're not heroes who can boast in great sacrifice for God. We are merely Christian hedonists. We get and understand that He is our supreme pleasure and will be for a billion eternities, right? That's what we get. We're not martyrs, you know, figuratively. We don't, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm a Christian, you know. You know, you see these people, it's like, oh, I'm a Christian. It's so hard. I have to give up so much. It's not about that. It's I get God. And let me tell you about Him. Hey, I know I'm yelling a lot. I've been getting some critiques on my yelling. I know some people don't like my yelling. But I can't help it. You're going to have to fire me because I can't help it. Yelling happens. When I get up here, it happens. Um, so I, my apologies. Piper continuing, we have discovered that there's a hundred times more joy, satisfaction in a life devoted to Christ than a life devoted to frivolous comforts, pleasures, and worldly investment, invest, advancements. Did you notice there in verse 30, he adds, he adds something to the list. Oh, you get, you get persecuted as well. <laughs> you get everything plus persecution. Now, I know that on the face of it, that doesn't sound great. But in genuinely walking with Christ, we discover we have new spiritual family, verse 29. But we also discover we have new spiritual enemies, verse 30. Jesus has said very clearly, if you go with me, the world will hate you. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That's John 15, if you want to go read it for yourself. 
But we've done the heart math. We've done the heart calculus, right? He's worth it. He's worth it. Do your worst. Unbelieving world, do your worst. He is worth it. And let that be part of our evangelism that we love Him in the persecution and we hold to Him in the persecution. And as MacArthur talked, you know, we smile in the face of persecution. We're not whining about it and wringing our hands. It's going to come. Some of us will live it, I think. Some of us are too old, we probably will leave before it gets too crazy. But to walk through persecution and love Christ, it just, you know, it says, it shouts, Jesus is better than anything this life can give and Jesus is better than anything death can take. So let me close with this. Another Piper quote, and I love this quote. I don't remember where, one of his books, I can't remember. Listen to this. Real faith. This is what this man couldn't do. This man could not do this. This man couldn't imagine going to this place in his heart, his mind, and in his life. He could not do it. It was impossible for him. But listen to how Piper describes true Christianity. Real faith is utterly in love with God. I could stop right there. Real faith loves God more than job, more than money, more than dream houses, more than retirement. Real faith loves God more than family. Real faith loves God more than life. Real faith says what, whether God handles me tenderly or gives me over to torture, I love Him. He is my reward. Amen? This is how we walk victoriously through the week, every week. And we come back in here and we get built up again because our God is great. We can walk through anything because... Psalm 121, he's, our, he's my keeper, He's my guard, He's my protector. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He's always holding me in His righteous right hand. He exalts over me with all of His heart and soul. He sings songs of joy over me. Beloved, I mean, you know what? We just got to live, we just got we to gotta learn to preach to ourselves. It can't be brain dead stuff. And I know it's not. For most of you. The red words teach us that genuine Christianity, it looks like a sold out, narrow way, fruit bearing, supreme love, discipleship kind of life. It's what following Jesus looks like. He told that young man one thing you lack, and I pray that there's nobody in here that lacks that thing, which is I supremely love Jesus Christ. Now, if, if you have questions about that, I'm happy to meet with you. Brad will meet with you. Joe will meet with you. Any, I'll talk to another fellow believer. You know, if you have questions about it, let's, let's get it prayed through. Right? Let's, let's work through it. Everything's at stake. If you think you lack one thing, let's get it addressed. Let's get it addressed. Let's pray together.